Welcome to the Dive Podcast presented by Willamette Week. I'm your host, Hank Sanders. Each week, we tackle a different issue that's uniquely Portland. So tune in every Saturday to hear a new episode complete with interviews and editorial that helps explain our city. From Portland's leading paper comes a brand new way to engage with the news, sports, arts, and culture. Stick around. Welcome back to the Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Hank Sanders. It's good to have you in today. Today is January 16th, and we start the show with the biggest stories of the week, the biggest headlines, everything you got to know about what's going on in Portland. This is the 90 Second News Flash. Prior to this week, teachers were ahead of seniors in the line to get the COVID-19 vaccine, but that changed when Governor Brown announced this week that starting January 23rd, People over 65 can get the vaccine. Did you know that Oregon has a state song? It's called Oregon My Oregon, but it might be getting a makeover as Oregon State Representatives Shouten and Salinas are proposing a rewrite due to racist and outdated lyrics. One such lyric goes, Conquered and held by free men, fairest and the best. I'll let you make of that what you will. Governor Kate Brown has activated the Oregon National Guard to assist the Oregon State Police in upcoming instances of civil unrest at the state capitol ahead of Inauguration Day. There's a lot of Governor Kate Brown news this week as Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kafori has asked the governor to prioritize COVID-19 vaccines for incarcerated peoples. On votes for impeachment, the Oregon representatives voted along party lines, with the Democrats voting to impeach Trump and the Republican Cliff Bentz voting against. Continuing on Rachel Monahan's work from last episode, the Oregon Health Authority estimates that 90% of adult Oregonians need to either get the vaccine or get the virus itself for the pandemic to end. The Oregon Zoo has put down Inji, thought to be the oldest living orangutan in the world. Sad day, sad week, RIP. This has been 90 Second News Flash. Folks, today is a special episode because we have not one but two main stories that we're looking at. The first is brought to us by Willamette Week's arts and culture editor, Matthew Singer. Singer wrote this week's cover all about board games, and more specifically, nine games made by Oregon-based companies. Quarantine has been bad for business across the board. Bad pun alert. But board game sales are up in a big way. I sat down with Matthew to talk about his cover. My first question was this. 2021 has already brought in so many news stories. This week alone, I could see the Willamette Week cover story going to any number of major stories, between vaccine distribution, protests at the Capitol. Why is it important to bring people's attention to games? People are still looking for relief from those things. The the thing about being an arts and culture editor, particularly right now, is that I I think you always sort of um, grapple with feelings that you are you know not doing quote unquote important work as compared to your uh you know compatriots on the news side but i don't i don't think that i have no problem being that relief valve from time to time or most of the time you know people don't want to necessarily be thinking about the impeachment every second of every day because you know we're so connected now to everything that's happening in the world 24 hours a day that you kind of need to give people some of that relief. And I've, I'm happy to be that relief valve 
with some, you know, a lot of people said like what their thing is they want to provide people some small moment of joy and, you know, sitting down and playing a game is a way to de-stress from all the other bullshit that's happening. And I don't think you can really discount how important that is. About the article specifically, you talk about how Portland is a leading place for board games. Why is Portland so uniquely a hub for, uh, what, what makes Portland a hub for, for video games? Or, sorry, for board games. Yeah, I guess maybe it just, it just goes back to the idea that Portland is just a city of tinkerers and, and creators, uh, which, you know, back before, you know, the, 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 I think the answer to the question of why that was, was because, you know, a, a decade plus ago, it, you know, rent was so cheap here that it just became an artist hub because people could come here and they could, you know, work, uh, work a service industry job and still afford to live decently enough to pursue the things that they really cared about. And it's gotten more and more difficult for people to do that. But I think that that's, that kind of spirit is still sort of underlaid in uh, throughout Portland. And I think it's the reason why certain people still come here. People also talked about how uh, Queen's Gambit, the, the TV show on, on Netflix, uh, impacted chess sales. Um, do you think we're going to start seeing uh, uh, games incorporated into, into TV shows uh, as, as quarantine has brought more of them to, to our light? There's been quite an intersection in the yeah. a historical intersection between games and popular entertainment. So I would, yeah, I would imagine that's going to continue. Although I feel like the Queen's Gambit kind of had its, had its moment. And I think, uh, I would imagine you're going to be seeing a lot of resales of chess sets uh, like six months from now. Yeah. People are like, oh, it's actually, it's actually kind of hard and a little boring. What's something that got left out of the article? I mean, I, you know, I cut, you know, we were going to do 11 yeah. And I cut to one, well, I think I told you, you know, I, I recommended uh, speaking to Laura, Laura E. Hall. She is widely considered the um, best uh, escape room designer in the United States. Um, but it didn't quite fit the like, you know, there wasn't like a game that you can go and buy from her. So I decided to kind of hold that. But she's a very interesting person and we'll be writing something about her, you know, pretty soon. I'm a big fan of board and card games. I play them all the time with my friends and family, and since this is the game issue, Matthew and I had to play a game. So we played You Think You Know Me, which is created by Amy Bayo out of the Portland-based Pink Tiger Games. The way this game works is there's an array of questions with blanks, and you try to fill in the blanks based on what you think the opposing person would say. Here are excerpts of Matthew and I playing You Think You Know Me. So, th so this is like a prompt where it's like, I, it's, it's an either or, so I have to choose right. which one. So. I know you do slash don't care what people think of you. Um, you know, if you're interested in journalism, I would have to think that you are not uh, particularly worried about people's opinions of you. So I'm going to say that you do not necessarily care what people think of you. I'd be lying to say if I didn't have uh, if I if I didn't care what people thought about me. So I feel like, uh, but I'll give you the point. I'll give you the point. We got to even it up. We also got to make it interesting, right? We're like we're, we're right. like the refs in the NBA. We got to give them some free throws at the end just to just to keep it close. Uh, I know your favorite time in history is. I actually have no idea, but I'm gonna go with. Uh, I feel like you read books about uh, about espionage during the Cold War. Uh, incorrect. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know what my specific 
uh, answer to that is I'm a child of the 90s. I think I probably have to admit, even though I think probably the 90s are my, my favorite 90s. time period. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was a little off on that one. So I'm not going to take a point on that one. That would be my, uh, that'd probably be my father-in-law's answer though. You got my father-in-law's <laughs> answer correct. Okay. Well, that doesn't count, but. I know your favorite smell is, let's just go with strawberries. 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 You know what's funny is that um, Tom Brady has never had a strawberry because he hates the smell so much. Isn't that weird? That is an interesting fact. Isn't that crazy? That is, that is something I did not know. Well, the, the, this game either teaches you about the other person or teaches you about Tom Brady. Those are the two things uh, that this yeah. game... Uh, you this think game you know Tom Brady. I promised you two main stories, and while I'm a total board game nerd, I have to keep my promise and move on. Reporter Tess Risky brought us a bombshell report this week, so we had to get her on the pod. In September of 2020, Oregon saw some of the most devastating wildfires in Oregon's history. These fires led to evacuations of tens of thousands of people. But it wasn't only local communities that were evacuated, prisons were also evacuated. When this happened, the Department of Corrections, or the DOC, combined two jails, the Oregon State Correctional Institution, OSCI, and the Oregon State Penitentiary. OSCI is known to have a large population of prisoners who have dropped out of gangs. OSP has a large population of gang members. The merging of these two groups has led to turf wars in the form of assaults, fights, messing with other people's food, water, and living. Tess has brought to light multiple accusations that question Oregon prison standards. My first question had to do with a quote from a source of Tess's named Jay. I want to talk to you about a quote from Jay, and the quote is, the jail did not seem to take any precautions to keep rival gangs separated. Is this a cost of doing business thing where you're, uh, it's just, it's just what's going to happen when you have a bunch of criminals and you need to move them around? Um, Or did the state and the prison system uh, have a duty to do this, to do a better job at this? My understanding from talking to different attorneys who've represented Oregon prisoners for decades is that it's standard protocol in prisons to keep known rivalries separate. Um, So um, whether or not there is a policy that specifically was violated, I don't know if that's true, but um, I understand that just in terms of how prison politics work, um, the prison would be well aware that you know, these group of people should not be in the same room as this group of people. And so is there like a profile of each prisoner that says, oh, this person can't be next to this person? I don't know how granular they are, honestly. So my reporting in terms of like, they would know that, you know, Jimmy Johnson is a former crip, therefore he can't be among other crips. But my understanding is like OSCI is known at least among prisoners and attorneys alike as a place where gang dropouts are housed. Um, And so, and OSP, um, where they were transported to, it's the only maximum security prison in Oregon and it is also a gang 
hotspot. So on a more macro level, my understanding from talking to these groups is that the prison would be, by the prison, I mean the whole you know Department of Corrections system would be aware that mixing these two groups would lead to problems um, because of that tension. Uh, in the in the in the story, Brandon Kelly, the superintendent of Oregon State Penitentiary, uh, says that they did a good job, the great job, a uh, a you know a work. Um, they scored a touchdown. Uh, did they? I don't think so. Okay. Um, I think, but they have a different standard than what um, I might view as uh, an A job. Um, to my understanding is that the bar for them is, you know, nobody was sent to the hospital because of a fight that broke out from this and nobody died. So, you know, that's an A. Um, the lawyers I spoke to said different. Um, they said, well, there were a lot of fights that did break out. Um, many of the men were um, terrified the whole time they were there. They didn't eat anything because of fear of what would be in the food. They didn't drink anything. Some passed out while they were at the um, prison because they were not eating or drinking anything. Um, some did not get their medications that they need to take on a regular schedule to control, you know, to prevent them from having a seizure, for example. Um, based on those criteria, I would say no, this was not an A. They concede in the report that they sent me uh, yesterday afternoon that they decided the morning of, as the fires were kind of raging, okay, we gotta go. So it was a very split second, let's move as quickly as we can. Um, and it seemed to lack um, like a methodical approach and was more of a like emergency situation. Some people might say, you know, that's great. They moved as quickly as they could um, to safety. Other people might say, you know, maybe they should have, maybe it shouldn't have been so rushed. Maybe they should have thought through this more. Um, and especially when you, you know, realize that they moved these prisoners um, about five miles away from where they were before. You spoke to the spokesperson for the Department of Corrections, and she yeah. says that their security cameras detected no evidence that food was being tampered with, despite multiple people in the story talking about pee going into coffee, wires going into food, band-aids going into food. Is, is somebody lying here? Are people really sneaky with what the, with how they get the food, with how they get the stuff into the food? Uh, is there a cover-up? What's going on here? Um, I would say that... Um absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. So because they don't have footage showing somebody directly contaminating food doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, I don't think that their Department of Corrections is outright lying. I think that they just don't have evidence that that occurred. Nearly a dozen prisoners independently described finding foreign objects in their food. What are the unanswered questions uh, that Oregon, the Department of Corrections has? Uh, what's next and, and what can we expect? I think we are owed a better explanation about the gang dynamics in Oregon prisons and the extent to which 
the officers and the Department of Corrections um, administrative officials were aware that these two groups being together would um, cause problems. I don't think that the Department of Corrections has been entirely transparent about the rivalries that exist in Oregon prisons. It's really hard to find information about it and to report on it. Um, and I think they're not totally transparent about the degree to which they could have anticipated that that would happen. What surprised you most about this story? And maybe was there something that made this story unlike other stories that you've written in the past? I think what surprised me about this story is the degree to which these prisoners described feeling traumatized by what happened to them. To have many different men who I interviewed um, start crying, re- retelling these events to me um, and say they feel like they took several steps back in their um, development and that their PTSD was re-triggered from this event and that they're afraid to go eat in their cafeteria still and they make their cellmate go and get them food now. That is really what surprised me because on its face, it seemed like, oh, what's the big deal? Like these are a bunch of tough guys. They're in prison. They can handle an evacuation, right? It's just a wildfire evacuation standard practice. Um, But it actually really seemed to have disturbed these folks who I spoke to, to a degree where they're still, you know, four months later dealing with the side effects of that. Um, And I have, you know, a few lawyers who I um, keep in touch with about this um, and they say, nearly every inmate phone call they get to this day is about the evacuations to Oregon State Penitentiary and how they're suffering from it. It's a whole additional story is the women prisoners who were evacuated from Coffee Creek Correctional Facility to Deer Ridge Correctional Institution. Sorry, the names are sometimes hard to to remember. Um, And they... um, took like a multi-hour bus ride across the state and um, had to, you know, urinate on themselves. And, you know, they also had huge issues with getting medications. And I spoke to a lawyer who said that at least one woman had a seizure because she wasn't given her medications. So I'm hoping to get to write more about that evacuation in a separate story. To anyone listening, you know, stay tuned for more. Um, there's, There's a lot to say about this. Special thanks to Tess Risky and Matthew Singer for bringing us the two stories of the day. Great reporting on their part. We end today's episode with quote of the week. Shout out to Republican Senate candidate and QAnon supporter Joe Ray Perkins for this one. While protesting the 2020 election, Perkins gave this quote to Tess Risky in a phone call from her hotel room. Quote, I came here to support our country. This is the American Revolution. Ah, yes, that reminds me of the famous quote from the American founding father, Patrick Henry, when he famously said, give me liberty or give me a La Quinta with a continental breakfast. Also, Lieutenant Pashley, you were so close to a two-peat this week. Please come on the show anytime so we can get more gems from you. Folks, that's this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Come back next week for more great content from the Lama Week podcast. Have a great weekend. We love you. Stay safe.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Dive Podcast, presented by Willamette Week. For more information, go to willamweek.com, follow Willamette Week on all socials, and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at HankSandersPDX. Special thanks to our guests for joining us, and thank you to Aaron Mesh, Mark Zussman, and Brian Panganibon, as well as the entire Willamette Week family. For Willamette Week, I'm Hank Sanders. This has been The Dive Podcast. Thank you.